0: Our subject is the Lord's cup versus the demonic cup. This is the theme of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 and following. And we are going to learn that demons are real, but that neither Satan nor his demonic horde can match the power of Jesus Christ. Our study leader, Dave Wordson, will not sidestep or soft-pedal the difficult issues and the questions. He doesn't ask you to agree with him, but he does invite you to take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 for yourself.
1: In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 14 through 22, the Apostle Paul continues the passage that I talked about with you a couple weeks ago where we went back into Israel's history and we learned about how dangerous idolatry is. And we learned that idolatry is intimately associated with immorality. We learn that it was intimately associated in doubting the reality of God in our midst. We learn that idolatry is, as the Word of God develops, is very much involved in materialism, wanting to go back to Egypt, wanting to live for the old ways. The Apostle Paul comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and there's a very strong therefore. You look at verse 14. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, because you have the Old Testament... Because you can already analyze where a people of God have already gone in their lives. The children of Israel, for you as a group of believers, should be a model people. For me, they should be a model people that warn us about things we should do, but they're screaming at us about things that we shouldn't do. The wilderness generation is a dead generation that's lying Dead in the wilderness. That's a sad picture of the adult generation that came through the Red Sea. Only two adults made it. It doesn't mean that God's program was blown. It doesn't mean that God's sovereign plan wasn't carried out. But it's a great warning for us to realize that an entire adult generation missed it. They missed God's best. They missed in entering into the rest that God had for them. And they missed it because they fooled around with idolatry. As I travel around the country and as I interact with our own church family, I think that it's very easy for us to be reenacting the history of the wilderness generation. I believe that the Apostle Paul and the power of the Spirit comes to every one of you and he says in verse 14, Therefore, my dear friends... Therefore, my family, the word dear friends is the word brothers. In the book of Corinthians, it's a term of endearment. And one of the things I want to never come across to you is just a, a shouting, yelling preacher. Often when I interact with people on a personal level, which I think I probably spend about 60% of my time just interacting one-on-one with people, often I feel that they put what the preacher is saying. You've, you've heard guys in the preaching mode who are screaming and yelling, and many times they really don't make a lot of sense. And so the secular world system has put that off into a category. You know, they're the screamers, and they don't really think things through, and you don't really need to pay attention to them. It's just some old religious superstition. I think some of that has infected the church. And I think it's very important for us to recognize that the Holy Scripture isn't screaming at us, It's not some religious promoter that's trying to get in our pocket. It's a deeply loving community of people that care. The Apostle Paul, and I challenge you to study his life, think very deeply about a man of God that will not let you down, who won't con you, who loves you very deeply. And I pray the Holy Spirit is recreating some of that in my own heart and life. And we want you to know you are brothers. You are sisters. And so Paul comes to us not as a hellfire, scary kind of a person. He comes to us as a beloved brother. He says to every one of you, you're in a special family if you know Christ as your Savior. You're my brother, you're my sister, and I care. And because he cares, he's one of those rare people that tell you the truth. Doesn't try to snow you, doesn't worry too much about how you might react to him. And he just point blank says, listen, you've got to flee idolatry. You see, the Corinthians thought they were knowledgeable people. They thought they were wise people. They thought they could handle it. They thought they could come to church and worship with the Corinthians on Sunday morning. Then they could go out into the world and they could go ahead and be involved in immoral activity in their businesses. They could go to the temple in their day. They would go and worship. For example, you would get a business invitation from a friend that said, Would you come and worship with us at the temple of Asclepius, the God of healing? A lot of Corinthians were saying, hey, it's no big deal. Asclepius is nothing. And so we can go to the temple and we can eat the meal and we can enjoy time with our secular friends and there won't be any trouble at all because the idols are nothing. The Apostle Paul says, I agree. Asclepius is just a dead Egyptian healer who's long gone, has no influence on you at all. The little idols of Asclepius is Asclepius was deified in the pantheon of the east and of Egypt. This, this God, Asclepius, the Apostle Paul would say, is nothing. He's not a real person. He's a figment of man's imagination. But then he would go on and say something else that we're going to see in this passage. And this is what you have to see. As you look at idols in Haiti, as you look at idols in the East, as you look at some of our very subtle idols in our own day, the Apostle Paul would say that they have no life in themselves. But he would say this, Though the idol, Asclepius, or Zeus, or any of the other ancient pantheon, though they have no real existence in themselves, underneath that system is a very living and powerful supernatural world. The Apostle Paul's point in this passage is, Idols are not real. But the demonic culture, the demonic supernatural realities... The kingdom of darkness that is breathing through that idolatrous worship, that is working through that false religious system, is very authentic, very genuine, and something that a believer should not presume upon. A lot of you are asking the question, well, is there demonic activity behind some of the things that have gone on? The secularist response is no. It's all just human nature. The belief in demons is just like a belief in little fairies or little gremlins, it has no authentic reality. And so they try to deal with everything from a rationalistic perspective. On the other hand, you have a group of people that want to say that demons are involved in anything. Every time you get a fever, they would say there was a demon of the slalom ski or the demon of barefoot skiing that cut my foot. And what I would go on and say of that is it had nothing to do with demons or anything else. It's just a physical reality. If you take your foot at 40 miles an hour and slam it across a sharp edge, it'll cut. And cut badly. But you see, there's one group that'll make everything this demonic influence. And they have a demon of the air. And I've even had people call me to their home. They say, would you cast the demon out of this house? I have a demon of the furniture. I have a demon of the, of the ceiling. you know." And it goes on and on. A lot of people go from one extreme to the other on this. The Apostle Paul has this marvelous balance. And what he tells us today is that demons are genuine, they're real, but they're not even in the same class as the living Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be respectful. You need to recognize the reality of the kingdom of darkness. But you don't need to be petrified by it. Because you have a stronger cup. You have a stronger fellowship. And what I want to really motivate you and be you to the Spirit to drive you to is you need to recognize the preciousness of the fellowship and of the oneness that you have with the invisible Christ. Because that's what Paul says. Paul talks to the Corinthians about the reality of this demonic world, but what he does to give them an answer is go to the jugular and talk to them about the reality of your fellowship in the Lord. Let's look at that as we talk about the union of the Lord's table. He says, I speak to you as sensible people. He says, I don't want you to become fanatical. I want you to think this through. I want you to be careful, self-controlled people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Every one of you can evaluate, you can analyze. You yourself can think carefully about what we're about to study. Verse 16, Paul gets into the the real centerpiece of what he wants to tell us. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks our participation in the blood of Christ? What is this cup of thanksgiving which we partake? Could be the wine, the wine of what? Tell me loud. The wine of communion, okay? What does communion mean to you? We've talked about this through the years. What does communion mean to you? You see, it's very possible that as some of us meet together and we meet once a month at our family dinner, I think it's very important, especially in light of this passage, that we often partake of the communion supper and what it means. And the Apostle Paul talks about the intimacy, the reality of the communion supper. And he calls it, look what he says here, he calls it, it's not the cup of thanksgiving, he calls it a cup of, of blessing, a cup of thanksgiving. In a Jewish meal, when you partake of a meal with Jewish people, it's a very beautiful thing. You begin the meal with breaking of a bread. But at the very end of the meal, the head of the house will often ask the guest of the house to take a cup, to take a cup of wine. And he takes a cup of wine and he thanks God for the gift The blessing, God's blessing upon this household. And the fellowship of gathering together around that table. And then he passes that cup. He takes a sip and he passes it all around the table. And it symbolizes the thanksgiving, the blessing, the solidarity of that meal. In the Sabbath meal, there are five cups. The cup of blessing is the third cup. Jesus in the Gospel account in celebrating the Passover takes the cup of blessing and He says to a group of disciples, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is the cup of the new covenant which I am giving for you. And the concept is that that cup represents the blood of Jesus Christ which symbolizes His violent sacrificial death in our place. Now, all of you know that, but because you know it so well, it becomes everyday stuff. We stop really recognizing how important it is. Now, I want you to understand something. We are living in a fellowship of blood. But it's not a fellowship of continuing blood. It's not a fellowship in which when we partake of the cup that Christ's blood is shed again. This is very, very important. Because as you partake of the cup of blessing, why is it a cup of blessing? Because it symbolizes Christ's death and it means forgiveness for you. You see, the reason it should be so meaningful for us to partake of the cup of blessing is deep in your heart, every one of us should be saying, I am forgiven all the bad things that I've done, all the guilt that I feel in my heart, all the anger, all the violence, all the immorality, all the guilt that's deep inside of me has been done away with. It's been cleansed. It's been forgiven by a total free gift. Do you know that that's the most precious reality that we can ever celebrate? If you're a born-again believer today, As you sit there today, you are forgiven. You are clean. And some of you say, well, Dave, but, but, but. If you only knew the immorality I was involved in. If you only knew, you know, the murder that I was involved in. You know, maybe somebody here had an abortion back there sometime. Maybe at a time when hardly anybody was doing it. Maybe somebody remembers very violent things they did before they were saved. And the Apostle Paul is telling us that the cup of blessing means that you're blessed. It means that you're forgiven. It means that it's been dealt with. That you need to stop trying to earn forgiveness. It's a very interesting thing. In the occult, you often have sacrifices. In the occult, you will often shed the blood of a goat, for example. Or you'll hear about a cat being sacrificed. Or you'll hear about some violent deed being done. Why does that happen? Because Satan capitalizes on guilt. And deep within the human heart, we know that the only way to get some kind of appeasement, the only way to get some kind of gentleness, is for there to be a sacrifice. Satan spurns and curses and rejects the sacrifice of Jesus, the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. So what he does is he drives people in their guilt. He drives people in the agony of their souls. The people that I have worked with that are the most involved in satanic worship, most involved in the occult, have the lowest concept of themselves imaginable. And it makes them very angry and very hopeless. And there's no way they can ever be forgiven. It's a very twisted kind of guilt because they won't respond to the truth. When you tell them the cross paid it all, they won't accept that. In fact, pridefully, they reject it. And yet they'll live trapped in the agony of their souls and they'll punish themselves, and they'll want to hurt themselves, and that anger can spill out and hurt many other people. And so Paul comes to us as a group of believers and says, when we partake of the cup, we partake of a cup of thanksgiving. And I trust with all my heart that every one of you will be reminded of how sacred and holy it is for us to be able to partake of the cup to be able to partake of the communion. And it's a symbol of this deep reality. And I ask every one of you, is that a deep reality to you? Is the fact that Christ shed His blood which stands for the violent sacrifice that God made for you, does that do anything in your heart today? If it doesn't, you need to ask yourself very seriously where you are with Christ. You see, I work with a lot of people that when I talk about the blood, they say, oh, yeah, I know about the blood. Sure. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Great. And that's all it means. Two plus two equals four. Christ died for my sins equals forgiveness. I've known that all my life. Big deal. That's not saving faith. Because there's no personalness in it. You see, saving faith isn't up here. Saving faith is looking, symbolically you might say, into the eyes of the Lord Jesus as a person and really realizing that that Savior who is God, who is man, who is the perfect God-man, who is the sinless, spotless gift of the Lamb of God for you, it's looking into his eyes and your heart and saying, I believe in you, Jesus. You see, if you really love him like that, You can't go out and just say, well, I don't care how I live. I know I'm going to be all right. I know I'll be in heaven. Everything will be fine. You see, if you believe like that, you don't understand the blood. If you're that flippant about it, then there's no personal dimension in your faith. The Apostle Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he's saying, I'm reminding you, Corinthians. I think he's coming to us. I'm reminding you this is not culture. Culture. This is not just something we do on Sunday. It has to do with the depths of the human heart. I pray most of all that your family knows that in the fabric of your everyday life, the cup of blessing, the forgiveness that comes through the cross of Calvary is the greatest blessing that could ever come to you from the living Lord Jesus.
0: As Dave has been talking to us about the difference between an impersonal, cultural knowledge that Jesus died for sins and a personal heartfelt conviction that he died for you, has your heart been trying to send you a message? Have you come to that moment when you see the cross as such a wonderful gift for God to provide for you? Take time and allow God to speak to your heart about your sin, your need for a Savior, and the love that Christ has you. Don't be like some of the Corinthians who knew all this in their heads, but danced to a different step in their feet. We will pick it up at this point next time. Why not invite a friend over for coffee or spread the word around your office that there is this opportunity to hear some preaching that's not oratorically fancy, but it's sincere, honest, and straight to the heart.